Welcome to the New Politics Podcast, providing analysis and opinion on Australian politics and filling in all the gaps left behind by the mainstream media. In this episode, he's no Bob Hawke, but is Scott Morrison's Accord going to become a new version of work choices? The robo-debt system blows up in the face of the government. Is it the beginning of the end of News Corporation? And we look at the riots in America and the blasting of Aboriginal sites in the Pilbara. Is there a link between these two events? I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, and you're not. First of all, a big thank you to all those people who have offered support to our podcast in recent times. We don't beg, guilt trip, or claim the end of journalism is nigh. We just keep it very simple. If you like our work and want to be part of our style of journalism, go to newpolitics.com.au and donate whatever you'd like to. And up until the end of August, if you pledge $50 or more, we'll post out a free copy of our new book, Divided Opinions. We get to keep offering our expert opinions on politics and you get a nice little book in return. Sounds like a pretty good deal. It's a great deal. If you don't like us, donate anyway. Dissension is good. He's been compared to Bob Hawke. His invitation to business leaders and unions to sit down and work out common ground on industrial relations has been dubbed the Accord 2.0, and he's been invited to attend the Group of Seven Summit in September. But, as with most media massaging, it's time for a check on reality. Scott Morrison is not Bob Hawke. The original Accord was a process that lasted eight years and totally transformed the Australian economy. Morrison wants his reforms implemented within three months and his ambitions are more related to the original work choices agenda implemented by John Howard back in 2005. And also, Australia already has special observer status at G7 and attendance at this year's summit was guaranteed anyway. The media is usually at hand to prop up the Prime Minister at most opportunities, but have they pushed the barrel a little bit too far in their comparisons with Bob Hawke and the Accord? I think I said on Twitter, Bob Hawke was a deeply flawed man, but he had the spark of greatness in him. Hawke had great compassion. He didn't always use that compassion, but it was certainly genuine. Hawke, I think, did want to make Australia a better place. Whether he did that, whether the way he went about it, whether we agreed with his version of a better place on it is, is a whole other thing. But certainly you could point to elements of Bob Hawke, his undoubted charisma, his ability to persuade a hostile nation, to bring together two parties and hammer out a compromise that everybody could work with. I don't see any of this in Scott Morrison. I see a deeply flawed human, and that's about it. He's not a charismatic person. He doesn't have a clear vision for Australia. Hawke did have a clear vision for Australia. Again, one thing we can point out is his treatment of Chinese students. As soon as the Tiananmen Square thing happened, Hawke brought over refugee Chinese students. We can't see Scott Morrison doing anything near that. Hawke did a lot of work for Aboriginal reconciliation. He's part of the process that started uh, Mabo and Wick. I can't see Scott Morrison doing that. Well, the Accord series of reforms started off when Bob Hawke and Labor won the 1983 election. The economy at that time was moribund after eight years of Malcolm Fraser's Liberal National Party government. Unemployment was at 10%. Inflation was high. Industrial action was very common. 
And there was a recession where the GDP figures fell by over 6%. And there was also a list of reforms that Fraser and John Howard, who was treasurer at the time, should have implemented, but they didn't. Bob Hawke, at that time, he did say that good policy equals good politics equals good election outcomes. And he was certainly right about that. Labor did what was best for the economy and for the public interest. They did cop quite a bit of flack from the left of the Labor Party for deregulating the economy and selling off public assets. But that circle of good policy and good politics did result in good election outcomes for the Labor Party. Bob Hawke was Prime Minister for eight years and Labor was in office for a total of 13 years. I just don't see that with the current Liberal government. They just want to cut out the good policy part of the equation and they're primarily looking for vote grabbing and a good election outcome for themselves. Having won the election they shouldn't have won. And a lot of people in the Liberal Party felt that they weren't going to win and probably shouldn't have won. Having won that, they haven't actually been able to do much. They've then been struck by two once-in-a-century disasters the bushfires, which we're starting to forget a little bit, and, um, of course, the pandemic. The federal government has not performed well in either. I know that the media is saying that they're performing really well. The state governments have performed well. I believe the Liberal government in South Australia has functionally at least eradicated the disease from South Australia. It's had three weeks of no new cases, and that's fantastic. Uh, Western Australia hasn't had very many new cases New South Wales has had low cases. Victoria had an outbreak, unfortunately, and Queensland is low but has outbreaks. None of this has been because of the f federal government. It is good that there's a, there's a perception and the electorate believes that governments all around Australia are doing a pretty good job during the pandemic. Morrison seems to be wanting to implement a new version of work choices, and it's an ideology that's shared with the Business Council of Australia. If we go back just a couple of years, we look at when the coalition reduced penalty rates. That was 2018. This is a big thing that the Business Council has been pushing for a long, long time. It's something that the Liberal Party has been pushing for a long time. Morrison wasn't the Prime Minister at that time. That was Malcolm Turnbull. Scott Morrison was the Treasurer at that time. But their big promise was reduce penalty rates in Australia. This will lead to a surge in job creation. That never actually happened. Even though corporate profits were going up, wages were still stagnating, and very, very few new jobs were created. And I see a lot of similarities between 2018 and 2020, that there's a big push to use a crisis as a smokescreen for an ideological pursuit. Morrison has been constantly saying that the industrial relations system is broken without saying what is actually broken about it. And this process he's been pushing for the sake of job creation will more than likely go the same way as penalty rates. There'll be the claim about the necessity to severely curtail working conditions, that it's good for the economy and will result in job creation. But if these reforms that Morrison wants to implement in the workplace ever come to fruition, there'll be an entire generation of people who will lose their rights at work. The most economically successful times we've had were that period between about 1946 and about 1972. Wages were high. The middle class expanded, but because wages were high, people were able to... Uh, and unemployment was at, in the 62 recession, I think, unemployment hit 2.3%. 
meaning that 97.7% of people who were eligible or who were able to work were working. And this was proper figures too. Work was considered full-time work. Part-time workers weren't counted in that. At the moment, anyone who works more than an hour a week is counted as employed. This pushes the figures down. So that includes a lot of students who you normally wouldn't include in such figures, stay-at-home parents who probably wouldn't be included in those figures. It doesn't include people who've given up looking for work because there's none around and who are somehow coping without income. I do believe that greed is a motivating factor here, that the less you pay everyone, the more money you can have, without the understanding that the more money people have, the more they tend to spend. It's an insane scenario that if we cut everybody's wages, there'll be more money. When the money floats up, the the Rudd stimulus shows that. As soon as everyone got their $1,000, most of it went straight back into the economy, into the bigger businesses that we shop at, that we deal with, and credit cards and, and what have you. So it's always defeated me that you would want miserable workers anyway because you're not paying them enough and that you don't want them well paid so they don't spend the money. My biggest fear is that the Liberal National Government, they've got access to a massive amount of money at the moment, and there's a strong possibility that they're going to squander it in the same way as they squandered the mining boom in the early 2000s. Parliament has approved in-principle spending of over $300 billion, and instead of spending the $130 billion on JobKeeper that was allocated to that program, now it's only $70 billion. So that means that they've got $60 billion to spend on pet projects, all of these other items that are probably more in, in keeping with that idea of winning votes at the next election. As you did mention, the coalition pretty much had no agenda in the lead-up to the 2019 election, and it seems to me that it's policy on the on the run. There's unproductive middle-class spending and welfare. The latest one is the $25,000 grant for home renovations. Now, there's a couple of catches there. That all sounds fantastic. People might be thinking, great, I need a new bathroom. I'll set that up. Or I need the steps out, out the backyard fixed up. I'll get the $25,000 for that. The catch is that you have to spend at least $150,000 of your own money, whether that's savings that you've got or you get a loan from a bank. I can see what's going to happen here. There'll be a lot of unwarranted and unwanted home renovations that will get underway, even if people didn't necessarily want them. Trading costs will go up because of supply and demand issues and and because of the fact that the government will tip in $25,000 as well towards these projects. And there won't be enough tradespeople to support the demand because the government cut many of these apprenticeships and TAFE training many years ago. So this is just one example of poorly thought out policy. There'll be a lot of wastage within this program and probably and potentially many other programs. And we'll be paying for these ineffective programs such as this one through national government debt over the next 20 years or so. Building on on the face of it is a good thing. You end up with a structure that people can use. Renovations, however, uh, you end up with a structure that three or four people or five people or, you know, maybe 10, whatever, how many people live in the house can use. And then what happens? It's money that doesn't help the wider community. Uh, The school halls were given to every public school in Australia. 
The vast majority of them are now being used as, well, focal points for the school, but also meeting points for the communities. A lot of stuff happens in school halls outside of the normal school curriculum on weekends and things. Yet someone's, you know, new kitchen isn't going to help that much. And I'm getting a lot of criticism from the usual government supporters. I'm, I'm even going to go out on a limb and say, I think this proposal will be quietly dropped. Adam Crichton, the editor of The Australian, called it stupidity. The Australian is not a left-wing socialist rag that criticises the government at every turn. So when the editor of The Australian comes out against something, you know it's not good policy and it's time to be dropped. Well, this program is related more to marketing and, and political spin. It's actually known as Home Builder. It's $688 million of money to be spent over the next couple of years, but that's roughly going to be 27,000 houses or house renovations across Australia or around 10 in each suburb across every suburb across Australia. So there's not actually very much stimulus going on there anyway. And it goes back to what I what I mentioned before, that this seems to be more about setting up flares in the sky so that people look over there and think what a great, fantastic program it is. By the time they realise that they're not actually eligible for it or it's too difficult to access that money, the election might be all over. And it's all, it's all been about catching votes for the 2022 election campaign. Yeah. Even the pink bats brought down electricity prices and helped the community. It's a government that knows what it wants but doesn't know what to do with it. You know, it's the dog chasing the car. If he catches it, what's he going to do with it? This is the current, well, Liberal National Party with the Office of Government. Now it has it. What's it doing with it? Not much, or at least not much that benefits the broader community. One issue you've mentioned in previous episodes is Kerry Stokes is the oil and minerals man. He's very well known as the owner of Seven West Media, but what is less well known is that around 60% of his interests are actually in oil and resources. Just a few days ago, he purchased a 7% share of Boral Industries. They're a manufacturer of building construction materials and supplies. I just wonder how much he would have known about the Home Builder program before it was actually announced and whether that influenced his decision to purchase a share of Boral Industries. It's a remarkable coincidence and a stroke of genius and a brilliant business uh, move. Or we'll, we'll never know. I mean, it's hideously illegal. It's insider trading and blatant insider trading, and I, I'm not going to accuse Kerry Stokes of that. But there is a way of perhaps looking at it that one might see with a less scrupulous person at the head of such a company, one might conclude that there's something fishy going on. Well, it's absolutely remarkable. You and I both work in the media industry, albeit at the lower echelons of the media industry. But if we wanted to pick up the phone and speak to Scott Morrison, he may or may not get back to us probably in about 12 months' time or 18 months' time. Kerry Stokes, he just needs to pick up the phone, give Scott Morrison a call. He'll be at the other end. So it seems like something a little bit dodgy has been going on here. I don't know exactly what it is, but it just seems like a remarkable coincidence. The other big economic news has been the announcement that the economy is in a recession for the first time in 29 years. GDP in the March 2020 quarter fell by 0.3% and the June quarter, while it won't be confirmed until September, will actually be far worse. 
The December 2019 quarter, that had a marginal growth of 0.6%. Now, this is usually a flourishing quarter because of Christmas spending and other seasonal factors, but not this time around. The September 2019 quarter before that showed a growth of just 0.5%. Josh Frydenberg did announce the Australian economy is in a recession, but he blamed the effects of COVID-19 and the severe bushfires in the last season. And as we know, this is not a government that takes responsibility for anything, but the economy was tanking way before the pandemic started. And it started with the disastrous budget back in 2014, over six years ago. I'm wondering what will it take for the media to start understanding that the Liberal National Party is just not the wonderful economic managers that they keep telling everyone, and they're not the wonderful economic managers that the media keeps pushing in their media messaging. The economy has been spluttering for some time, and it's got very little to do with external influences. It's, it's got to, a lot to do with the poor economic management of the Liberal National Government. Usually what happens is that the Liberal government, this happened under Fraser, it happened under Howard almost, it happens at the state levels quite a lot. The government in power runs it into the ground, lose the election, the other side clean it up and have to wear the pain. It's backfired on them this time in that they've run the economy into the ground over the last seven years. But instead of the Labor government coming in and then having to make the necessary cuts and sacrifices to get things back, it's the Liberal government who's had to do it. Sometimes it's better not to win. Well, the economy as it, as it stands right now, it's actually in a much better condition than what it was compared to the 1983 recession. The economy at that stage was in a dire situation. Now, we can say that there's a bit of smoke and mirrors going on at the moment. JobKeeper has actually taken away a lot of people from the unemployment queues, and which means the unemployment figures as well. Officially, unemployment is at 6% at the moment, but if you take JobKeeper away, it's somewhere around 15%. JobKeeper is one of those things that seem good till you look at it. Not everyone got it. A lot of companies uh, have, anecdotally at least, just taken the money and not passed it on. People who should have got it, and I'm thinking of the university sector, I'm thinking of the arts and entertainment sector, I'm thinking of a lot of the retail sector, a lot of the sports sector, and a lot of the tourist sector didn't get it. For reasons that were never quite explained. The idea that casuals could only get it after 12 months, the law is pretty clear that you're not casual after 12 months and after 12 months employment, you start to get the same benefits as permanent part-time. And in fact, the law very much encourages through extra benefits and stuff, you to become permanent part-time. So there was that, people who'd been in jobs for six or eight months, which is a fairly substantial amount of time for a casual worker, miss out their blunder and that's what it was a blunder at best of saying oh we've found an extra 60 billion dollars coincidentally around the time of a by-election that they would love to win is another thing that doesn't really bode well for the government's economic management yeah job keeper i think is smoke and mirrors rather than a than a, even a temporary support when we get to the end of it it won't have the same type of effect that the Rudd-Swan stimulus had. 
Well, there still might be smoke and mirrors as far as the statistics is concerned, but I'm pretty sure that all of those people that are still receiving some income through the JobKeeper program will be quite happy about it. But there is still quite a lot of people that are not actually receiving JobKeeper. And there's all of those university casual staff, they're not receiving anything at the moment. So I'm just wondering what sort of value judgments are being made here. There's $688 million being thrown into a home renovation scheme. Now, there might be good economic outcomes that come out of that, but that's essentially personalising all of these sort of issues. It's not really that productive as far as the overall economy is concerned. $688 million into a home renovation scheme, but $0 have gone into university casuals. Yeah, what's the longer-term benefit? an educated population that is self-supporting and sufficient and or somebody's house that that looks a bit better. I suspect there is a motive to privatise the tertiary education system. The private colleges on the whole have failed. Not all of them, but a lot of them were just scams. And you can't really run education at a profit. So it was that situation where the government had a choice between funding university casual staff or funding backyard toilets, and they've decided to go for the backyard toilets. But that's the choice that they've made, and that's something that they'll have to deal with the consequences later on down the track. As far as these comparisons with Bob Hawke or the Accord 2.0, all of these ideas, I think that's just media flourishing, waxing lyrical about the, the virtues of Scott Morrison, which, as far as we can see, are quite unwarranted at this stage. The Accord was an eight-year process of reform after reform. There were six different periods of the Accord as well. Scott Morrison's only been at this for, for a couple of months. We'll just have to wait a few more years to see whether this can be dubbed the Accord 2.0 or whether it does morph into something more sinister, such as Work Choices 2.0. There's going to be a lot of people who won't be happy. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, listen through SoundCloud and Spotify, or find us at newpolitics.com.au. Up next, the government's cruel and brutal robo-debt scheme. In 2016, Centrelink started an automated process of matching the records of welfare recipients with income data from the Australian Taxation Office and increased the amount of debt recovery notifications from 20,000 each year to about 20,000 per week. Although the government was warned about this automated robo-debt process and the removal of human oversight, they were warned that it was highly inaccurate, indiscriminate and possibly illegal. They continued with the program and expanded its reach in the 2018 budget announced by Scott Morrison. In 2019, after a grassroots campaign was launched to check on the legalities of the robo-debt scheme, the High Court ruled that the entire program was unconstitutional and illegal. And last week, the government announced it will pay back $721 million that it recouped. The Robo-debt program cost $600 million to manage, so it was largely ineffective, but it was hostile, inhumane, and it was a state-sponsored bureaucratic cruelty that not even Franz Kafka could have written up about. 
all up on the back of a class action instigated by Gordon Legal, the cost will be around a billion dollars. Despite all the warnings, despite the knowledge about the harm inflicted on almost half a million people, it was a program that ran unchecked and was unaccountable for almost four years. Now, these are not the sort of programs that government should be implementing, programs that cause so much damage and harm to the public. The government should be there to help. And yes, people make mistakes. Governments make mistakes. You get paid too much, for example. You claim the wrong thing, for example. Maybe you do that deliberately. Maybe you do that accidentally. If you do it deliberately, there are, and can be proved that you've done it deliberately, there are consequences. If you do it accidentally, surely you should be able to make your claim. And of course, under the legal system we've adopted, you are innocent until proven guilty. And that is as it should be. So the government determines that you've got a debt. You then have to prove that you don't have the debt. And I don't know how you do that. 2,000 people couldn't cope with it and ended their lives. And also that number of 2,000 people that you mentioned that died or suicided after receiving Centrelink debt notices. Now, these are not actually made up figures or rumour from social media. These are actual figures released from the Department of Human Services. So they're actually official figures. I mentioned it before, government should not be involved in this sort of program, but it was largely ineffective. It was largely designed to brutalise people. It was enabled by the media. The Liberal National Government, they went to extremes on this program. They changed the statute of limitations. They made appeals very difficult. They imposed travel restrictions on people. They employed debt collection agencies as well. There was also this idea pushed forward by the media and pushed a little bit by the government as well that it was all because of automated intelligence or artificial intelligence that the algorithm was to blame. But algorithms just don't appear out of nowhere. It's not like you look under a cupboard and there's an algorithm. There are humans that actually create the algorithm in the first place and the parameters that they operate within. So the entire process of of this data matching was absolutely intentional by this government. This spectre of the doll bludger, I can point to a million doll bludgers, maybe not a million. Scott Morrison never had a job that he did well at, is good at spending money. Joe Hockey, James Patterson, Senator, what's he do? Winch. Dan Tehan, Minister for Education. Stuart Robert, who doesn't seem to be able to negotiate unlimited internet for a reasonable price with his internet provider. Rupert Murdoch, one of the great dole bludgers of Australian history. How often have his failing businesses been propped up, not by his own massive wealth, but by government subsidy and uh, tax rorts? These are the types of doll bludgers we should be going after. Instead, they go after the poor, the vulnerable, people who did what they thought was exactly the right thing and then were told it was the wrong thing. And okay, mistakes happen. People misunderstand things. But you can't tell me that the only way to solve that problem was to send a letter of demand and debt collectors. It's disgraceful and disgusting. Stuart Roberts should be sacked, arrested and charged. Scott Morrison, who set it up, should be sacked, arrested and charged. There are potentially massive repercussions heading their way when we look at the United States and the crumbling there and Britain and the starting to crumble there. I think this is the type of thing that might start it here. I'm not going to say that definitely, but you can see where it might be a, uh, a spark to a bigger, a bigger fire of frustration and despair at the system. 
Well, all of this action implemented by the government, it's almost like the action of a gangster class or a criminal class, a criminal activity, gangster activity, standover people chasing the money. Sure, chase the fraudsters that are defrauding the Commonwealth, but should the government be involved in chasing small amounts in a complex estimating procedure? just seems like totally unwarranted behaviour by the government. Again, we really shouldn't stop until there are arrests of the key figures, most of whom, if not all of whom, are elected representatives. It's a kleptocracy at the moment. It really is. And this is the kleptocracy writ large. The other sideism and the whataboutisms will come out, but we're talking 2,000 deaths. And I haven't looked down at the breakdown, but I'm guessing they're not rich white people from the northern suburbs and the more affluent suburbs on the whole. But the government did announce this repayment of $721 million during during the junkyard time slot of media news. And that's after four o'clock on a Friday afternoon. The journalists have gone home. They're at the pub drinking wherever they can at the, at the moment with social distancing limitations. But they've finished their deadlines. You might get some online journalists writing up the news, possibly by late Saturday afternoon or something like that. So they put it in the time slot where it was likely to receive the least amount of notice by the media. And over the weekend, they just kept on pushing this idea that the Labor Party used the same method, which is totally untrue. Labor did use data Mm. matching to recoup overpaid amounts, but they had human oversight as well. During the time of the Labor government, there were 15,000 recoupment notices going out each year. During the time of the Liberal National Government, that was up to 20,000 per week. So there's an absolutely massive difference between what the Labor Party did and what the Liberal National Party has has been doing. They've yet to apologise for all of this. So all of the people came out within the government to say that this is a policy that all sides of governments have been using. Christian Porter, the Attorney General, he came out to say pretty much the same thing. Scott Morrison has been coming out to say pretty much the same thing. So has Josh Frydenberg. There still isn't any apology coming from the government. They've mentioned that they've got some regret about the way that the program was implemented, but that's about it. The paying back was obviously meant to be some kind of stop against the class action. And it might work. Some people might just be happy to get the money back and move on and and not worry about it. It's highly stressful. We don't know, though. I think the amount of damage done, the amount of people who who were so worried couldn't function properly, couldn't look for jobs, couldn't eat food, couldn't maintain their rental payments, couldn't function as a normal human being, I think that that's going to have some blowback. Again, we, we will see. It was stupid of them to try it. They were advised again and again that it wasn't going to work. The announcement was made 15 minutes after the Prime Minister had finished a press conference, so he didn't even have the fortitude to mention it himself, and I don't believe that he didn't know about it. We also get an insight into the media management of this government, bring out the bad news late on a Friday afternoon. Not too many people hear about it. The government also did the same the Friday before that. The JobKeeper bungle, where they mismanaged their estimations of the program by $60 billion and then spent the weekend trying to drown out the bad news with their own interpretations about the events. 
They also did the same with the announcement of the recession the other day. Josh Frydenberg, he did do a media conference announcing this news about the recession, but this was immediately drowned out by the subsequent announcement of the Home Builder Program. Now, we've discussed it. It's a controversial and very ineffective program, but that got the media talking, and that deflected from more serious news about the first recession that Australia has had in 29 years. And it also gets down to the the big issue about the depth of reporting. Sure, all of this bad news that's coming from the government does eventually get reported, but it's very ephemeral. It's mentioned once or twice, and then that's pretty much the end of it. Now, if we compare this with the media reporting during the global financial crisis or about the mining tax or the carbon tax when Labor was in office, there was virtually no respite from the media, and it was relentless. This time around, it's almost like there's no economic crisis at all. Mm. And imagine if that tax had come in, how much better of a position we'd be in now, although it probably would have been squandered anyway. It would have been fine till the Liberal National Government got in, then it would have just been given back to the miners. It's ridiculous. We have a government who doesn't know what they want. I've already said that. Doesn't know what to do with what they've got and can't even demonise the poor and unemployed properly. Uh, other governments paid out the dole and what have you, demonised the poor and unemployed, but still paid it out. This lot couldn't even do that right. So, of course, there's always things that go on in the media and there's been a couple of issues that have been brought to our attention the closure of Murdoch-owned regional newspapers. So there's 112 print editions that will be going online. 36 titles will be completely disappearing, so we'll never see them in newsprint anymore. It's only a couple of years ago that Murdoch purchased these titles from APN News and Media, and this, of course, is after the changes to the media ownership rules. The idea was that this was going to strengthen newspapers and reporting, but essentially what we've seen over the past couple of years have been these newspapers and media outlets being used as advertising vehicles and propaganda for the Liberal National Party interest. So how should we be actually looking at this news? Should we be concerned about the loss of a wide range of regional newspapers and the loss of jobs in the media? Or should we be happy to see the end of some poor quality newspapers and right-wing propaganda? I'm in two minds about it. I think local papers are really vital. Local news is really vital, knowing what's going on in the community, the good stuff, the bad stuff, the you know, what's going on with the local councils. How much stuff will local councils be able to get away with now? Uh, I can't see the Daily Telegraph or The Age really caring what's going on in, say, Armada Local Council or Leongatha Local Council in Victoria. I think, you know, a place where local sporting teams can have their results published, pictures of your kids and what everybody's got up to. And if you're getting on a bit, it'll tell you if you're dead, you know. <laughs> uh, the, the idea that what's happening in that community you live in is vital. Again, most of them have been rags, unfortunately. Most of them were run into the ground. Most of them were propaganda wings for the local members. A lot of them were just really getting stuff from other papers. I think it's really interesting that now AAP is closed. 
a lot of local newspapers are no longer viable because a lot of them just had stories and reviews and features from places like AAP. There's probably a connection. I haven't thought deeply enough about it to go into it. But you're absolutely right. The market has spoken. I note after Rupert Murdoch took 200 million to prop them up and within two years, they're gone. Well, 500 jobs will go across Australia. We're not sure exactly how many of those are, are journalists, but these will affect those communities, of course. And we're sorry to see those jobs go. But there has been a divide between mainstream journalists and smaller independent journalists. The mainstream media journalists, they've been pretty much saying that it's devastating, it's tragic, it's a tragedy, it's a blow to democracy. Whereas independent journalists have been mainly saying, well, look, this is a process that will probably improve journalism, it will improve democracy. And if the mainstream media wasn't so bad in the first place, and if they had been more adaptive to the new world of journalism and the new world of media, and perhaps if they weren't so supportive of one particular side of politics, it might not have got to this stage. I mean, a lot of these are fairly safe national party seats. But why are they safe national party seats? A strong media presence hasn't stopped corrupt local councils. And in some cases, the local paper was very much tied up in the corruption. I could point to local members who shouldn't be in their seats, but had very strong support from the local media. And for the disengaged reader of politics to see positive story, even if they don't read them and aren't interested, this makes a difference. And so you get in some local members, not all, some who really shouldn't be there. I think there's a possibility that we're seeing the breakdown of these huge press oligarchies. It will take a while. I've been saying for years I don't think we should have anyone needs to own more than 10% of the industry, and I'd start there. Now, of course, the other thing too is that print media is dying. People are finding it strange that we would slaughter tens of thousands of trees a day to read something once and then use it to wrap the rubbish in. We can access every newspaper in the world through our devices, whether that's phone, laptop, computer, smart TV. There are, of course, particularly the older people who don't have that kind of access. So print media isn't going to die just yet, but it's on a decline. And I think within the next 20 years, the only way you'll get to see a newspaper is to go down to the state library and look through the microfiche. Well, it also gets back to the quality of reporting and the, the depth of issues such as cultural context. And I'm thinking about the way that the media has been analysing and reporting particular issues recently. The, the big news coming in from America over the past week has been the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the protests against police brutality inflicted upon black American people. Some of the media over here have been reporting the events as race rights, although it's primarily about unjustified police racism, brutality and the murders. But it has been interesting to see the Australian media perceptions of these events in America. It's, it's almost a case of, well, that sort of stuff happens over in America. It doesn't happen in Australia. Well, maybe not the riots and the protests to that extent, but the endemic racism and police brutality, well, that's certainly here in Australia. Just last week, we had two events. They're different events, but they're related. 
Rio Tinto detonated an Aboriginal cultural site in the Pilbara region. They knew that it was culturally significant. It was, it's a 46,000-year-old site in the Dukan Gorge, but Rio Tinto decided to blow it up anyway, all happening during NAIDOC week. Just a few days before that, Andrew Forrest and Fortescue Metals took the Indibandi people to the High Court so they could override their native title. And on the same day, the media was focusing on the events in America with their it's all happening over there style of reporting. A 17-year-old Indigenous kid was knocked to the ground by a police officer in Redfern, had his face smashed into the pavement and then handcuffed. Police and institutionalised brutality against black people, it's not just something that happens in a faraway place somewhere else in another part of the world. It's happening right here, right now, and it's happening in a number of different ways. It's so upsetting as a historian to see a site that they knew about, absolutely knew about it, 45,000 years old, probably blown up by the or on the order of the same types of people who will tell you that Australia only has a history of 200 years or 220 years. The ind- Indigenous peoples came here somewhere around 60,000 years ago. That number keeps getting extended as we find more evidence, by the way. 20 years ago it was 40,000 years, but it seems that it's much longer. There are some people who say it's as old as 80,000 I don't know what the most accurate number is yet, but I think it's very safe to say at least 60,000 years. The galaxy has spun a couple of times in, in that time to give a, a sense of how long that is. <laughs> As a historian, really, and I'm not an Indigenous historian, I've spoken on Indigenous history in various courses I've taught and things, but I'm not an Indigenous historian in, in, as a specialist. But certainly 45,000 years is a lot to lose. There's a racist element in mining management. Lang Hancock famously wanted to build houses out of asbestos for indigenous communities because asbestos was cheap and it also uh, had a devastating effect. He was quite happy to blow giant holes in indigenous land to get to the iron ore underneath. Lang Hancock also suggested poisoning the waterholes of Aboriginal people as well. Yeah, it, it's it's Australia's great shame, its treatment of the other, refugees, Indigenous people, immigrants, foreign students. We're looking at foreign students who've been used as a cash cow by the tertiary system, thanks to federal government uh, modelling, starving, needing to get food coupons, to be able to eat. Refugees, I don't need to, Re- regular listeners of this podcast will know a lot of about what well, one we think of the treatment of refugees here and also know a lot about, about the treatment. And of course, how Indigenous people have been treated has been just appalling. And I like to think it's getting better, but I don't think it is. And of course, I speak from a position of relative privilege. I've never experienced racism. I've never had the microaggressions every day. People looking at you as if you might have just stolen something. People assuming that you're uneducated. People looking at the way you dress and being perplexed by it. 
Well, I did see an interview on the project the other night. It was with Nakia Louie and Marcia Langton talking about their experiences as Indigenous people in Australia and some of the shocking racism that they had personally experienced and on such a regular basis. The project panel, they listened in and they were genuinely shocked about what they heard as if they'd never heard anything like this before. Now, to give the panel credit, they did thank them for coming on and acknowledge that they just had no idea about these sorts of events yep. that are, are experienced by Indigenous people every day of the year. That, to me, was a real surprise. That The project is all about news presented differently to a younger audience. The demographics of the project's audience is the 20 to 40-year-old age group. The panellists themselves on the project, they're probably in their mid to late 30s, early 40s, but... For the panellists in this sort of age group that you'd think would be more aware about these issues just goes to show how far we have to go to reach a more positive style of race relationships in Australia. And especially when we keep thinking that all of these problems are just happening somewhere else. Yeah, it's looking back at my childhood in Central West New South Wales, stuff that we saw as normal was absolutely abhorrent, really. And I could say, well, nobody knew any different, but how it affects other people, how it deeply ingrains into you to the point where we don't know what is racist, the power of language. Privileged white people say, oh, I encourage these people to, to stir me back and call me names too. It doesn't bother me and I'm just doing it to be, to be inclusive because that's the way. But if you've had that all day and then you have a friend come in and do it, but it must get tiring that you're defined as the other. And of course, we shouldn't define an entire group of people just based on high incarceration rates or being beaten up by the police. But that's what the fact is in Australia. That's what's happening. Australia has got the highest incarceration rate of Indigenous people anywhere in the world. It's actually four times higher than the, the rate in the US. We did see those images of the 17-year-old boy being knocked to the ground in in Surrey Hills uh, during the week. That happens on a daily basis in Surrey Hills and Redfern. I'm, I'm just talking about the Sydney experience. I'm sure that it happens in the big cities on a, on a daily basis all around Australia, in the big cities, in regional Australia. It happens quite frequently everywhere. And it's just that in that case, there were a group of people that had their mobile phones recording a police officer attacking a 17-year-old boy. And I guess the worst thing about that was that the media itself and the police commissioner came out and said, well, look, it was just the police officer having a having a bad day. <laughs> I went into the shop and the shopkeeper didn't say hello to me straight away, so I threw her to the ground and then had three of my mates piled on her. I was having a bad day. I know, and, look, I know that being a policeman is a horrible job. I re I, I've, back in a prior life, I worked at a police station and I knew a lot of police officers I've got a cousin who's a police officer. My grandfather was a police officer. So I've had a little bit to do with it. And I know it's a horrible, horrible, horrible job in which the worst of humanity is on constant display. It also requires a certain personality type because you've got the, you've got the state, the power of the state behind you. So there's no need to be overly aggressive. And I do know that it's a tough, tough job. And yes, all of us do have bad days. As a performing musician, I could go and smash up all my equipment on a bad day or I could just do the job. As a lecturer, I could go in and 
demonstrate my mood to the people I'm speaking to, or I could just do my job. And that's what it gets down to. And if you can't do that, it might be time to consider another job where you're not so exposed to raw emotional high intensity experiences that make you react badly. And especially during what's happening in the United States. Well, the events in America and Australia, they they are different, but they are related. There are still significant race relationship issues in both of those countries, not so much between individuals, but for the behaviours in the institutions of government, the police, as well as the law. And it, and it just goes to show that we've got a long, long way to go. Yep. And hopefully we'll go a long, long way in a short, short time. I'm not holding my breath, though. That's it for this new politics podcast. Don't forget to give our program a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or any other location where you can find us. Thanks for listening in, and you can continue the conversation at our website, newpolitics.com.au. I'm Eddie Djokovic, and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.